0: So, as, uh, as many of you know, but for the sake of those who don't know, um, I'm Alan Nielsen. Uh, my wife, Diane, and I have been part of the Mission Church for just over six years. Um, we were believing, practicing Mormons for the most part of our lives. Um, Diane and I had a similar uh, upbringing as both of us were raised in what is commonly called Mormon fundamentalism. It is a subset of the more largely known LDS church. And a few years after our marriage, uh, the two of us joined the mainstream LDS church and raised our family to be believing, practicing Mormons. I've entitled my message tonight... LDS priesthood in contrast with the Bible. I'll be drawing from my experience as a Mormon and hopefully help you to understand, you know, what barriers and stumbling blocks need to be navigated as you have conversations with your Mormon friends and neighbors. My message is not to belittle or to mock believing Mormons, rather in love Juxtapose the idea of priesthood and authority in the LDS religion with the clear teachings of the Bible. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everything you do for us. Thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word, Lord, for its truth and the clearness of its truth that, that opens our eyes to see truth, We thank you that you have preserved it down through the ages of time, that we can open it up and understand and know and see what you have done for us. We thank you for Jesus and his great sacrifice for us. We thank you, Lord, for your loving kindness to us, your patience, your steadfast love endures forever, Lord. We thank you. Pray that you will be with me tonight. Pray that my words may give you glory. And bring praise to your name. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Mormonism, like Islam, is structured on a Christian framework. In fact, it claims to be a restoration of lost Christianity from sometime after the death of the apostles. And restored in the beginnings of the 19th century. For there to be any need for a restoration of necessity, there had to be a complete apostasy. In Mormon doctrine, this is called the great apostasy, and it means a complete apostasy. The earth had been plunged into darkness because of this apostasy, they claim. One of the proof texts used is Isaiah 60, verse 2, which we we read, For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. Reading from King James. Joseph Smith claimed to be called by God to restore that which had been lost. He claims to have had a vision wherein he saw God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. He also claimed that he had a visitation by an angel named Moroni who told him about an ancient record written on plates and hid in the earth. These plates were given, given to him to translate, which he did, and brought forth what he claims to be additional scripture, like the Bible. Essentially, he claims it to be another testament of Jesus Christ. We know this as the Book of Mormon. As his following began to grow, it became apparent for the need for him to have exclusive authority from God. As there was among his followers, others that came forward with sensational claims of seer stones and revelations, these came from God, they, they, they professed they came from God as well, and some of them with contradicting messages. One particular uh, person, I can think of is uh, Hiram Page, and he was one of the original eight witnesses of the Book of Mormon. Well, he found a stone, which he claimed to be a seer stone, and on that he also claimed there was writing, and he would write down what it said, and then when after he had written it down, it would disappear, and then another uh, passage would come up on there. He'd write it down. And he did this and was able to uh, put out 16 pages. And it was a purported revelation from God. Well, the problem was, is it contradicted some of the things that Joseph Smith had already uh, set up. So, to avoid any schism, where it would then just become a battle of wit, intellect, and personality, his claims were expanded. Drawing upon the Old Testament priesthood, where an exclusive authority was given, whereby only those with authority could act, his claims included a visitation from John the Baptist, who allegedly bestowed upon him the priesthood of Aaron. This now granted him an exclusive claim of authority from God. Using as proof text, Hebrews 5.4, and no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that was called of God as was Aaron. Reading again from King James. Shortly after this, his claim was again expanded, this time to include a visitation from the apostles Peter, James, and John, whom ordained him and gave him the higher priesthood, or the priesthood of Melchizedek. This priesthood, he claims, was Christ's priesthood, and the priesthood and authority given to the apostles to build the church. I submit that Joseph Smith structured his propositional truth claims to encompass exclusive authority direct from God through the medium of ancient prophets and apostles, using the Bible as a reference due to its already authoritative nature. So there you have a very brief primer to give you a grasp of the nature of the truth claims of Mormonism. Like all counterfeits, they draw from that which is familiar... And subtly move to the more unfamiliar. Remember that crafty line by the serpent in Genesis 3. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Over the last approximate 200 years, the LDS Church has built an ecclesiastical hierarchical organization with claims of authority direct from Jesus Christ with prophets and apostles that serve as mediators between God and man. As a Mormon, uh, you will have been raised to respect and revere this impersonal power that they call the priesthood. As a young man, you will be trained to eagerly prepare yourself to possess this power someday, provided you've been diligent and faithful in all your duties and obligations and, and in some way if they deem you to be a worthy candidate." As a church structure and organization, you know, the LDS church has been built on, on this priesthood authority and power. And as a result, it appears to have more of a form of heteronomy than autonomy. In saying this, I, I don't wish to indicate that it resembles the raw heteronomy of Islam, but let's just say that it has the flavor of heteronomy. So let me pause here and just give you a quick definition of heteronomy. Heteronomy refers to action that is influenced by a force outside the individual. In other words, the state or condition of being ruled and governed by a cultural system with external pressure and not your own moral compass. So let me give you an example. I was asked recently by a Christian that I met. Um, He moved here from Colorado and... um, as, as, he, as he got to know some of his neighbors in conversations, uh, he heard, he said not just a few, but he heard a lot of stories of Mormon missionaries who or somebody who had served a mission. He said they spent, as I learned that they had spent two volunteer years of their life uh, teaching the gospel that they believed was the truth to people in foreign lands, another state, what have you, um, And he said, and in all these, I heard of so many cases where he said, and now they're agnostics or atheists. He said, how does that happen? Didn't they believe? I explained to him, uh, you know, there is a lot of social external pressure for a young Mormon man to serve a mission. The top-down priesthood authority structure cascades down into the ward congregation level. And this felt very keenly by the young man. Not to mention, the young women are counseled to seek a return missionary for their spouse. By so doing so, they will have a much greater chance of a successful marriage. This is a lot of pressure. This kind of pressure is ubiquitous in the local wards, branches, and stakes of the LDS Church. As authority in the home... It is the man's priesthood that is the operating and governing force. The father is expected to use his priesthood to bless his family, to preside over them in love. However, it is the authority derived from the priesthood that underscores his right to rule. Because of this priesthood, he can administer blessings of healing the sick among his family and others. He is to guide, direct, and lead his family his authority does have limitations, since it is derived from the hierarchical priesthood power that governs the highest levels of the church. The Aaronic priesthood is called by the LDS church the preparatory priesthood. And it is bestowed upon the young man, as well as male con- new male converts, until they advance to the Melchizedek priesthood. In the Doctrine and Covenants in section 107, It reads, The power and authority of the lesser or Aaronic priesthood is to hold the keys of the ministering of angels and to administer in outward ordinances the letter of the gospel, the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, agreeable to the covenants and commandments. That's what it says is the Aaronic priesthood. Now here's the rub. It has been presupposed from Joseph Smith on down to today and largely echoed by its members, that all this, all these things I just kind of laid out, all this is in harmony with the Bible. Wow. What folly. This is just not true. Let me cap this off with what I think is a helpful observation. Most Mormons today, and this was true for me when I was a Mormon, have a plethora of faith-building stories of testimonies bearing witness of supernatural stories and accounts, all confirming the truth claims of Mormonism. Truth be told here, many of these stories are without a basis in reality, and many have been written and inserted after the facts and tweaked and embellished to appear authentic, and they all serve to bolster the truth claims of Joseph Smith and the Restoration. At the foundational level, there is the Book of Mormon. No basis in reality. The Book of Abraham. No basis in reality. Joseph Smith's revelations. No basis in reality. Joseph Smith's priesthood claims. No basis in reality. If you as a Mormon will not do the heavy lifting to investigate these truth claims, you will be left in the comfort of the heartwarming, soul-stirring stories, that feels real, real nice. Ironically, there is nothing real about it at all, except the real fact that it keeps you from knowing the truth, which will set you free. This is why there's so much resistance when the Mormon encounters the biblical Christian counterperspective, And this is important. Because they think what they have is reality. They think this is real. It's not real. Keep this in mind in your conversations. Be courageous and tell the truth. But be gentle and loving in your approach. My heart is heavy for the workspace burden that the Mormons carry. I can speak to it in a very personal way. Because I raise my own children in this environment. It's heavy. The Apostle Paul gives this real soul-stirring good news message of the gospel. Colossians two, thirteen through 14, quote, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is a good segue into what the Bible has to say about the priesthood. The concept of priest and priesthood in the Old Testament existed prior to the Aaronic priesthood being officially instituted. In Genesis 14, 18 through 20, we learn of Melchizedek, who was a king and a priest of God Most High. In Exodus nineteen six, after God had delivered His people from bondage, He proclaimed, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So it appears that the idea of priest and priesthood was not new to the Israelites. It was, however, formalized and regulated in the Mosaic covenant. The Lord had led them out of Egypt and said that He would make them a kingdom of priests. And He set them apart as a chosen people, and He used for their instruction the tabernacle. In Exodus 28, the legislation for the Aaronic priesthood begins with a very meticulous detail of the holy garments that Aaron and his sons would wear to set them apart. But more particularly, those worn by Aaron, the high priest. In Exodus 29, the detailed instruction for the ordination is given. Then in Leviticus 8 and 9, we read about the fulfillment of those instructions, where the ordination actually takes place. And then the animal sacrifices begin as they had been previously commanded in Exodus 28 and 29. In Leviticus 10, going on in Leviticus 10, we it, it appears to be shortly after the animal sacrifices begin that Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, were consumed by fire for unauthorized fire, and as many translations say, strange fire. And their disobedience it, it cost them their lives. Couched inside this tragic story, I think we can see a message. Nadab and Abihu were ordained and set apart as priests. Now speaking metaphorically, before the blood had dried on their earlobes and big toe, God consumed them with fire for their blatant disregard for his holiness. And no doubt they were complicit together in their act. Two things come to my mind. One... Just because you're called by God doesn't mean you have license to act on your own. And two, because you're called by God, you're in greater danger than those who have not. I think that is is important to note that this took place at the inauguration of the Mosaic Law of Sacrifices. And also in a similar way, in, in Acts chapter 5, shortly after Pentecost, we have the tragic story of Ananias and Sapphira being struck dead because of their lying to the Holy Spirit. And once again, they also were complicit in the deed. So Let's pause and look at a few things that we've learned so far. God selected among men, speaking of the Israelites now, A small group of men to act as priests in service to God. These men were from the tribe of Levi. And if you recall, when Jacob blesses his sons in Genesis 49, he says of Simeon and Levi, their anger is fierce and their wrath is cruel. And yet, by his grace, God chooses that tribe to act in the priestly role. God called Aaron to be the first high priest to be a mediator for all of Israel, the same Aaron that was instrumental in leading the children of Israel in false worship of the golden calf. We learn about the holiness of God and the dangers of drawing near to God casually or carelessly with the account of Aaron's two sons. We learn of the limitations of the Aaronic priesthood, and those who serve as mediators are sinful men. And we learn that we need to look for a better priesthood a better priest, there's just no basis for any optimism that this priesthood is a lasting solution for sin. In Hebrews 5, 1 through 3, we read, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So do you get the picture? Just like the new covenant, God's grace is active. There's no room for boasting. The whole body of Israelites sees a man like themselves who cannot enter the sanctuary trusting in his own goodness and innocence, and a man whose dignity is bestowed upon him only by the anointing and vestiture. This does not mean that there was no benefit to the Israelites. In Exodus 28, we read of two onyx stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod with engraved names of the tribes of Israel. Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Also, when Aaron goes into the holy place, he shall bear the names of the sons of Israel and the breastpiece to bring them regular remembrance before the Lord. On the forehead of Aaron, a plate of pure gold where Aaron bears the guilt that they may be accepted before the Lord. Leviticus 8 and 9 gives some of the details of the, of the, of the priest ordination and the sacrifices for the people. I'll just, I'll just summarize. The bull of the sin offering is offered. The first ram of the burnt offering is offered. Then the second ram of ordination is offered. And the unleavened bread, along with the fat and oil, as a wave offering. Then burn them on the altar as a food offering. The blood being thrown on the sides of the altar and put on the priest's earlobe and big toe. And then they were not to go outside the entrance for seven days until the days of their ordination is completed. On the eighth day, for themselves, a bull calf for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, then a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox, and a ram for a peace offering, and and grain offering mixed with oil, and they made atonement for themselves and the people. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people." In summary, their names were remembered, their sins were removed, and their persons were reconciled. Wow, that is a lot of blood and killing. I included all this in summary to bring into view the reality of sin and to highlight the point that the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins also in reading this I'm making the sharp distinction to differentiate what the Old Testament Aaronic Priesthood was against the LDS claims of Aaronic Priesthood to be blunt it is just ludicrous there's just nothing to compare that to it doesn't even fit once again like I said it has no basis in reality so let's move to the Onto the New Testament priesthood. This is what is active in in the Christian life today. The first thing we need to understand about the New Testament priesthood is that the Old Testament Aaronic priesthood is obsolete, rendered so by Jesus Christ, the great high priest. The Aaronic priesthood was beset by sinful men acting in the priestly office. But the priesthood that was inaugurated by our Lord, unlike the Aaronic priesthood, is marked by the perfection and holiness of Jesus Christ, in whom there was no sin. In Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, we read, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The second thing we need to understand is that Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron. In Hebrews 7, 11 through 14, we read, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, For under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. The third thing to understand is that Jesus is a better priest with a better sacrifice and a permanent priesthood. It is non-transferable. He is our high priest forever. In Hebrews 7, 22 through 25... Jesus offered the great sacrifice once for all to put away all sin, and he is our great high priest forever. Hebrews 10 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Fifth, the Lord Jesus Christ has instituted the priesthood of all believers. All those who are born again, who are united by faith with his priesthood, Aaron was Israel's first high priest, and consequently over all the priesthood. So Jesus Christ is the head of a New Testament order of priests. The priesthood of the Old Testament was called the Aaronic Priesthood. It was patrilineal, because all the priests were the offspring of Aaron. They were members of his family. The priesthood of the New Testament is composed of all who are in the family of Christ by adoption through the new birth. Hebrews 10, 21 through 23. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In the Old Testament, it was the priests who drew near to God, and only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. But now we are commanded to draw near to God with confidence and come boldly to the throne of grace. We are still required to offer sacrifices, but not of bulls and goats, but rather spiritual sacrifices. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Also 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Every believer can and should bear witness of Christ in some way according to their gifts and what God has called them to do. You can declare the wonderful deeds of Him who called you out of darkness. You can testify, can persuade, confess, rebuke, admonish, exhort, We as believers must mediate God's love into a darkened, dying world. This is our burden as priests. It is a ministry of reconciliation. We are priests of God to bring the message of reconciliation to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, here's a word of caution. In Hebrews 5.12, we read... For for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So Christian, what kind of priest have you been? This is very convicting to me. I've noticed there seems to be in the evangelical church this idea that pastors, elders, and perhaps deacons are the spiritual ones. And also I believe as the church has backslid over many generations, this idea has crept in that women are the spiritual ones. Churches for women and children and spiritual men like pastors who are looked upon as soft and sensitive men that we can come to with our troubles and be a sounding board when things aren't going so well in our worldly lives. Conversely, there also seems to be this mistaken idea that men can get together to talk deeply about doctrinal truths while the women... Discuss decorations and such. Understood rightly. The priesthood of all believers that Christ instituted does not allow for a man-centered hierarchical priesthood. For all believers, men and women alike, are the priesthood of the new covenant. Revelation 1, 5 through 6. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on the earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We, all those born of the Spirit, men, women, are priests to God most high. In closing, I've demonstrated by the Scriptures That the Mormon concept of priesthood is not that which is found in the Bible. In fact, like I mentioned before, the propositional truth claims of Joseph Smith and his concept of priesthood this has no basis in reality. Rather, it it's more like a work of fiction. It may make you feel good inside, but it doesn't correspond with reality. The hierarchical structure of the LDS priesthood puts man as a mediator between God and the people. But the Bible teaches something entirely different. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you once again for your word, its truth. I thank you that you preserved it for us. I thank you for Jesus, our great high priest, who paid the price once and for all on the cross. And because of him, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, that that, this truth that we can revel in and that we can come to know you and give glory and praise to you and who you are, Lord. And I thank you for this time tonight to be able to discuss these things and pray that you'll be with us all now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.